How many of you uh, watched Seinfeld at all when it was on? Well, I guess it's still on. It's just like constant, you know, reruns. Everyone familiar with this show, pretty much? Okay. Oh, Bob and Jean, not familiar. This was like the one, my dad was always kind of the one in control of the TV at, after supper and stuff, and I always liked Seinfeld. It probably wasn't age appropriate for when I was growing up to watching Seinfeld or Friends, because now that I look back at it, I'm like, oh, these are kind of, you know, a little bit uh, on the edge of term, in terms of what they're talking about. One of the things in Seinfeld was a holiday called Festivus, and the, the dad of one of the main characters said, it's a Festivus for the rest of us. And it was like this holiday that fell on December 23rd that he made up. And it was kind of in protest of the commercialization of uh, Christmas. And you'd get this Festivus pole, which was just an aluminum rod. You wouldn't paint a Christmas tree or you wouldn't decorate a Christmas tree. You'd just have this Festivus pole that was this rod sitting in the corner. And there'd be a Festivus dinner. And then there'd be something called the airing of grievances. And this is when immediately after dinner, each person kind of lashes out at the other people and the world for the ways that they have been disappointed by those people or by the world. So it's this airing of grievances, and the one, Frank Costanza, the, the guy who made this holiday up uh, in one episode where they are doing Festivus, he says, I got a lot of problems with you people, and now you're going to hear about it. So it was the airing of grievances, and everyone got their turn to, to air this out. And then afterwards, there'd be a feat of strength, which was basically people would wrestle the host, and if you could defeat the host, and then, you know, I don't know, it was like a, a, an honor thing. So it was like this wrestling match. And then they might go through Festivus miracles. It's a Festivus miracle. Uh, but the main reason I wanted to bring up Festivus was because of the, the airing of grievances. It's like this moment of like, okay, I'm sitting with these group of people, and I'm now going to tell you about all the ways you've disappointed me. Or I'm going to kind of air my grievances of how the world has disappointed me. And if you had an opportunity to air your grievances... Uh, you might have things like, you know, if I had that opportunity, I know what I'd say as if it was around my family dinner table or with friends or just, you know, maybe even a church group. Like, here, I want to air my grievances of uh, the ways that you've disappointed me. And we typically call that venting uh, is, you know, like, you know, I just need to vent for a little bit. Or like, sorry, I kind of, you know, vented there. Um, and, or we might call it processing. Like, I'm just kind of processing what happened or, or how I felt and um, what I want to do. Um, but think to yourself, what gets on your nerves? What gets under your skin? What really pushes your buttons? Uh, what rubs you the wrong way? What triggers you is kind of a word used these days. Of What triggers you, gets you mad or, or scared? And uh, what are those things that get on your nerves? And it's important for us to know those things. They're different for all of us. And behind them, there's probably a story of why does that get on your nerves, but that doesn't get on this other person's nerves. And, you know, why does that thing of theirs get on their nerves, but that doesn't get on your nerves? There's a story often behind those things of why that things, certain things get under our skin. And as we continue this four-week series on loving our neighbor, today we're doing uh, the third sermon. Um, next week, I'm going to do a sermon for Lent. Uh, and then Brian's actually going to follow up with giving a... a more of a devotional for Lent. Lent doesn't start till. Oh shoot! Now I'm forgetting. Well, thank, wow, that was that was a test actually. <laughs> when, when is it that Lent starts? March second. Um, and we want to. I want to try to make this a time when we're getting to actually think about Lent and not just saying what am I going to give up for Lent, but what does it look like for me to turn to God in this time, and what would I give up in order to turn to God? Um, and so we're gonna. There's gonna be a fourth message though in this neighbor series later on after 
Katie and I are back settled in um, after our, hopefully, our, our son is born, um, the 22nd. And so this is the third message. We're going to do a fourth. And when Jesus asked what the greatest commandment is, he decided to give two. Love God above all else and love your neighbor as yourself. And in this series, we're taking the second one uh, kind of literally rather than just like how do you love people in the world or you know anywhere as yourself, but how do you actually love your, your physical neighbors, the people that live right outside your door? How do you love them? And the issue is that there's times that our neighbors can be hard to love. Maybe their dog poops in your lawn and they don't pick it up or they don't see it. Uh, maybe they keep blowing their grass clippings onto your driveway. Maybe they don't shovel their part of the sidewalk. You always shovel yours, but theirs is all crusted over with ice because they never shovel theirs. Maybe they wait too long to mow. Their grass gets too, just too long. You're like, Jesus, it looks like we're living in a prairie or something. Can you kind of you know, keep your grass in a good place? Maybe their kids leave their toys in your yard. Or maybe they complain about uh, your... Well, this doesn't apply to any of you. I was going to say maybe they complain about your kids leaving their toys in their yard. And either way, there's some sort of complaining happening. Or maybe they think you're too loud or you think they're too loud. And we can maybe get into like, these are my pet peeves. This is, my, this is a pet peeve. I don't even know where that phrase comes from, pet peeve. Um, but they're like, this is this thing my neighbor does that just annoys me. It drives me crazy. I wish they would stop doing it. And I'm you know, bothered by it. Uh, it gets on your nerves. It gets under your skin. Dry, it, uh, rubs you the wrong way. And so we have those pet peeves probably in many relationships. But what do those pet peeves reveal? And as I said, they probably reveal something that matters to you, something that you value. Like, why do you care that their grass clippings are blown over onto your driveway? Well, you value having your grass picked up, having your driveway look nice. Or um, if there, there might be something somebody's doing that just reminds you of something from your past, like, oh, I always have my sibling always did this to me, and it always really hurt. And so now it's almost this bruise, and anytime somebody bumps it a little bit, um, you feel that, you have this reaction to it. And they reveal an area that is going to be a battleground for loving your neighbor, that pet peeve, that thing that gets under your skin. And these moments of annoyance and frustration are golden opportunities for love, for showing love. And um, so as we do go through this passage, I want you to consider, is there someone in your life uh, that is difficult for you to love? And first, think about your neighbor's. Is there a neighbor, somebody living in your neighborhood, who's difficult for you to love? They get on your nerves. They've done things that have annoyed you. Or maybe they've done things that hurt you. And uh, is there someone that's just difficult to love? Or maybe it's just the person that you're like, every time I see them, they just don't seem like they want to talk. So they're difficult to love. And it's hard. You don't want to reach out anymore. So who is that in your life? And if you're like, I can't think of a neighbor, you know, expand it out to friends uh, or family, or co-workers. Is there someone in your life who's difficult to love? And we're looking at uh, chapter 12 of Paul's letter to the church in Rome. Um, Paul is a follower of Jesus, sent out to be this um, missionary. And he writes this letter to the church at Rome. It's his longest letter he's ever written. And it gives the ex- fullest expression of his theology. Although it's not meant to just be like, here's you know all the things I believe. He's telling them, this is what... I believe, and this is what you say you believe um, for a specific purpose, and it's because they're experiencing tension uh, between Jews and non-Jews in this church. There's tensions going on, there's strife. People have maybe got under each other's skin. Um, People have rubbed each other the wrong way, and so they're finding it hard to love one another. 
And so he writes this letter to smooth some of those tensions. And a big part of it is, these are the things we believe. Uh, and so this is what this should mean for you as Jews and as Gentiles, non-Jews in this church. And we're going to look mainly at chapter 12, verses 9 to 21. But we're going to start in chapter 12, verses 1 to 2. And he starts in verse 1 of chapter 12 saying, therefore, and a therefore is a connective word. There's somebody in seminary that said, whenever you see a therefore, uh, you need to ask what it's there for. So if that you know, helps you or if you're like, that is so lame, just forget about it. But if it helps you, every time you see a therefore, ask what it's there for. Therefore is connect what's about to be said with what, what has come previously. And so it's really, the, in, what he, in chapters 12 through 15 of his letter, they get pretty practical um, but this therefore in 12.1 connects you back to the previous 11 chapters saying, I've just told you all this stuff for 11 chapters. Therefore, now this is what um, we're to do in light of that. And in chapters 1 through 11, he's been explaining the gospel saying, everyone, Jew and Gentile, alike, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's no one that has a leg up on anyone else. All of you, you right into this church, whether you're Jewish whether you're not Jewish, you've all fallen short. You've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the way to be righteous in God's sight is by grace, through faith, in Christ. And he sums that up in, in chapter 12, verse 1, by saying, uh, the mercies of God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. So he's like, I'm summering, in a way, summing up, you could call what I've just talked about, the mercies of God. And so in 12.1, he says, the whole verse is, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And so he says, I want you to be living sacrifices. This is how you're going to show your gratitude and commitment to God. This is how we're going to respond to God's mercies. And he calls it a living sacrifice, which is interesting, because in order to be a sacrifice, it had to die. That's how it worked in the Old Testament. I want to sacrifice Samuel. It's going to die. But in a way, um, Jesus told us, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And Paul earlier in the letter says, we die to sin so that we may live to God. And so in a way, a living sacrifice is dying to themselves, dying to uh, their sin, and now alive to God. And he calls them holy, which means they're set apart. They're dedicated to God. That's what a sacrifice was. It's being set apart for the purpose of uh, worship. And he says you will be acceptable, meaning God will be pleased by this. As you offer yourself as a living sacrifice, dying to your sin, dying to yourself, and living for God, God is going to be pleased with that. And he calls it their spiritual worship. And so it's not that worship is something that's happening you know, for an hour and 15 minutes on a Sunday or whenever they are meeting or when we're doing God's stuff, but everything is God's stuff. If you're presenting your whole being as a living sacrifice, you're always worshiping. This is your spiritual worship to God. And then how, how are they present themselves as living sacrifices? Verse 2, he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so, kind of on the negative side, he says, Do not be conformed. Don't fit into the mold of this world. Don't take its shape. There's, the world is going to try to be molding you. Don't be conformed to this world. Then positively he states, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. This isn't just an external conformity to uh, external uh, demands and commands and laws, but this is an inner transformation from the inside out. And when we're given God's spirit, 
God's Spirit reprograms us from the inside out. Of all the ways we've been formed to fit the mold of this world, now from the inside out, that's changing. Jesus has come to live in us by His Spirit. And so we're given these new inner attitudes that direct our outward behavior. And he talks about you're doing God's will, which is what Jesus said He came to do. That now from the inside out, we're becoming people who do God's will. And so our obedience and surrender to God is a response to what He's done. Paul is saying, because this is who God is, because this is what he's done, and because this is now what's true of you, therefore, offer yourselves uh, as living sacrifices. Commit to him. All, in light of his mercy, we respond with a life of service to God. We don't sacrifice and serve to receive mercy, but because we've received it, now we live different. And we look different from the world around us, not conformed. We're people who've been changed by God. And so I might ask, okay, well, what does that look like to offer myself as a living sacrifice, not be conformed to the world, to have my inner, my mind renewed? Well, verses 9 through 21 give some more details of what this looks like. And really, the very first sentence is, let love be genuine. And this is kind of like uh, the headline command, and uh, it's setting up what Paul has as a focus here. Not everything he says is directly tying back to it, but that's like the headline here. Let love be genuine. And the word for genuine is really unhypocritical. And a hypocrite is like a word kind of from the theater world where you put on a mask to play a character. And so if you're having hypocritical love, it's like maybe you're saying that you love people, but you really don't. Or maybe you're just putting on a show because oh, this is what I'm supposed to do, or I want to look good, I don't want people to be mad at me. And so it's this not genuine love, it's a hypocritical love. There's a missing integrity and so he says, let love be genuine. Don't put on a show. Don't say you love people, but then not do anything about it. Don't just pretend. Really love each other. Really show it. And then the, the passage breaks down into three se- sections after that. So the rest of verse 9 to verse 13 is answering the question, what does real, genuine love look like in the church? What does real, genuine love look like in the church? And this is... Um, verses 9 through 13, and has love being genuine as that headline, and then he immediately says, uh, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, meaning hate evil, hold fast to good. It's like you need to push evil away, you need to just hate it, fight against it, but then hold on to, cling to what is good. That's how you're going to love people. And then in verse 10, he says, love one another with brotherly affection, which is uh, the word Philadelphia, which is where we get, you know, I might have pronounced that wrong, but that's where we get the the city from. But it's this family love. You're supposed to love each other, not just at a a different level than you love your family, but you're supposed to have this brotherly, sisterly love, family love for one another. And then he encourages us to compete. He says, outdo one another in showing honor. Do you know there's a a Christian competition that we can be in that glorifies God? We're outdoing one another in uh, showing honor of saying, um, you know what, Larry, this is so awesome that you uh, welcome us to the Super Bowl party in your house every year. And that's a way to, we show honor to Larry. And then, we're trying to, and then somebody, Larry might say, nice try, Mitch. You, you know, you're, you've done, I don't know what, what I've done, but you can say, you do this. And we like, outdo one another in showing honor. And that's like the Christian competition we can be involved in. In verse 11, he then says, do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. And the word here. Uh, is kind of saying set it, we, the Spirit sets us on fire to serve the Lord. 
And Larry, a couple weeks ago, said um, for himself, he likes the phrase, all in. And so the Spirit enables us to be all in for Jesus. And it's not like, you know, I just kind of don't want to go fully there, but he sets us on fire um, to serve Jesus. And then verse 12, uh, we have this sequence of things. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. And one author I was reading said, you know, hope is kind of the end of the finish line. That's where we're trying to get to. And it takes endurance to get there. That's why um, there's this uh, rejoicing um, missed down here. So be patient and rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. So hope is the end line and we need to be patient as we get there. It's going to be a while of running this race, but then how do we, what keeps us going? It's prayer. Be constant in prayer. Prayer is going to keep us going as we're being patient, trying to get to the end, the finish line of our hope. And then he says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. And, And contributing to the needs of the saints is not like Catholic saints, but this is the word the Bible uses for God's people. Saints are people who have been made holy, they've been set apart by God. And so it's saying contribute to the needs of God's people, that we should be sharing our resources, what genuine love looks like. And then to pursue welcoming others into our home. And this, in they had in mind uh, one particular example is you would have these ministers that would be traveling to different churches and it's like show hospitality to them, you know, supply for their needs, uh, but then also within the church of showing hospitality to one another. And so he has these ways specifically that love will look real and genuine among us as a church, ways that contrast us with the world. We're not being fit to the mold of the world, but being renewed uh, from the inside out. And then he goes into, next, he's going to have verses 14 and 16 are kind of these three commands that stand by themselves. They, one of them points back to the previous verses about loving the church, and then two of them point, uh, or no, sorry, one points down, and then two point back. So one of them is about, this is more, another command about loving in the church, and then these, this is a command about now loving the world. And so he says in uh, verses 15 and 16, I'm going to skip 14 and come back. So 15 and 16 are now are still focused on um, loving within the church. And he says, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. So it's other people's joys and other people's sorrows. We share those with each other. That we celebrate when something happens in someone's life. And we weep when something bad happens in someone's life. So we have this interconnectedness in the church. And he says, you know, live in harmony. Don't be haughty. Associate with the lowly. And, and haughtiness is thinking too highly of ourselves, having a high opinion of ourselves. And we might think, that's below me. Or I don't have time for that. I, my, my time's too important to get involved in that. Or my way is the right way. It's kind of this too high of an opinion of ourselves, of thinking too, uh, taking ourselves too seriously. Like, I'm above this. And he says, but associate with the lowly. Could be lowly tasks. Could the low, be lowly people. Instead of feeling like, you know, I'm this. I'm just kind of above this. I'm, I'm, you know, gone beyond this. I'm going to let somebody else do those lowly things or associate with those lowly people. And he also continues on this line of thinking. Don't be thinking uh, you're wise in your own eyes. Of who evaluates whether we're wise or not? It's how much we're living in accord with God, God's word, God's will, and His ways. Not thinking, you know, I'm kind of wise in my own eyes. I'm not going to let anybody else tell me any 
you know, otherwise, um, not even the Bible or God. And so that's further talking about love in the church. But we can see how that would also help us in our neighbors' hoods as well. If we're rejoicing with people when they have something to celebrate, if we're sorrowful with people when they've had something uh, difficult happen to them, and you know, not being uh, thinking too highly of ourselves, um, trying to live in harmony with them, you know, and being willing to do lowly tasks and not sometimes as Christians we are like I need to serve other people, but it's like no, I can humble myself and say to my neighbor, I need help with this. Can can you help me with that? Or give me some advice? Or can you lend me this tool or whatever it is? And then verse 14, so that was 15 and 16, but verse 14 is more looking at um, what does it look like to love, for genuine love to be in the world? And he says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. And at this time um, in the history of the world, it's not, it's, they're experiencing what you might call a soft persecution. So there isn't like the government has taken a hard stance and there's this kind of concerted effort to now push down and persecute Christians. But there were people who were like, we don't like what you're doing. We're going to reject you. We're going to ridicule you. We're going to revile you. We're going to ask you know, accusatory questions. Then you might get kicked out of things. People might not associate with you. So it's like soft persecution. It's not this systematic or systemic, however you would say that, where the, everybody, the government is trying to weed Christians out, but it's like just in society they're not thought well of. But he says to them, bless, don't curse your persecutors. And this command finds its origins with Jesus. And it was unprecedented in the Greek and Roman world that you would be blessing the people that are doing you harm. And then verses 17 through 21 give more detail about what this looks like. And so we'll focus there uh, now as the next part. So verses 17 through 21 are asking, what does real, genuine love look like in the world? Uh, for us, what does it look like for us to have real, genuine love with people who don't share our beliefs? How do you respond to people who persecute you and do evil to you? And real love is seen when it's hardest to love. Love is seen when it's hard to love somebody. That's when it's real. The genuineness, genuineness of our love is shown when it's hard to love someone, when it costs us something to love someone. Because if it's not costing us anything, Jesus said, we, we heard in the Luke 6 passage, what good is it if you love those who love you? That's, you know, God's, everyone God loves is someone who fails at loving him. And so we show ourselves to be like God when we do that. So verse 17, it says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And so on the one side, it's don't get caught up in repaying what has been done to you. You're supposed to use a different type of currency. They've paid you with evil or bad or cursing. You're not going to give them that in return. You're going to pay them with a different currency. And so the positive imperative is do the good things that God wills us to do so that non-Christians... Uh, people who don't share your beliefs will recognize the good you're doing and approve of them. Be known as someone who does good no matter what's done to you. And then verse 18, he says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And I find this verse to be very freeing personally because it tells me uh, I can't always be at peace with everyone. But I can do everything on my part 
to be at peace with someone. I can't take responsibility for how they respond, what they do with their actions, but so far as it depends on me, be at peace with these people. They don't. Maybe they have something against me. It might be false, or maybe they're mad with something else. But they can see that I haven't done anything, and I've, and I've made my effort. And Jesus said, "Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God." Blessed are the peacemakers. And so, I mean, right now we have lots of ways we cannot be we could not be at peace with someone. In vaccines and masks and wherever we stand on that. And I've just been so grateful for our church that that has not become an issue. None of us want to wear masks, but we've all just given up our rights. And that's it's, this is abnormal right now in the church world, of what our church is like. And I've been so grateful. And whenever I tell people, they're like, man, that is that's such a blessing. And so it hasn't been an issue for us. And part of it is letting go of our rights, is that if we're standing on our rights as Americans, we never look less like Jesus when we're doing that. Because we're told in Philippians 2, Jesus, though he was God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but humbled himself, gave up his rights, came to earth, became a human, and then even died on a cross. It's that if we follow, if we say our king is someone who's given up their, his rights and died on our behalf, how can we not say, yeah, I'm not going to hold on to these rights, whatever, if they're valid or not, um, is that we say, even if it's my body, my choice, Jesus' body, his choice. He gave himself up, gave his body on our behalf. And so, um, just in, you know, that's kind of the thing that's heated right now is masks and vaccines. But in every circumstance, try to let your faith in Jesus be the only thing in your life that is offensive. If that makes sense. Not our conduct, not every, you know, some, I mean, not everyone's going to approve of our conduct or our behavior, but you want it to be like, You've done good, you've done what is right, and so you're standing good with God. And if they don't like Jesus, you can't really you know, control that. Let Jesus be the only thing about your life that's offensive. And then in verse 19, you know, this whole, if we're saying, well, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with others. And then in verse 19, it connects with that. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And so justice is not ours to give. And he calls them beloved, which is a good reminder that, uh, oh yeah, God's justice against us meant we were his enemies. But now you're beloved. God has loved you and turned you who once were his enemies now into his beloved. And our responsibility in any relationship is not, we are not responsible for judgment. Our responsibility is mercy, doing good, praying, blessing, living peaceably. And I, it helps me, I mean, it's hard, um, it doesn't make it easy, but this, it helps me to remember that in the end, <clears throat> justice will be done. God's going to see to it. It's going to be way more fair than my justice. And telling myself, either they're going to pay for what they've done, or Jesus has already paid for it if, he is, if they've trusted in him. And it was not my job to get them to pay for what they've done wrong. Either they're going to pay for it before God, or Jesus has already paid for it before God. Either way, it's not up to me. And so we don't keep a record of wrongs. We don't try to get even. <clears throat> we don't complain <coughs> about someone uh, to whoever will listen, but we leave it in the hands of God. Verse 20 tells us, okay, this is what to do instead. Instead of seeking vengeance, it says, To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, 
feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. And you may think, well, that doesn't sound very nice. I want my kindness is heaping burning coals on it. But um, people think that this is a metaphor, meaning that our kindness makes them ashamed of their actions. It's like uh, the burning with shame kind of thing. It's that our, it's like they're treating us so horribly, and then we respond by like, you're kind of, you know, this is, I hope this never happens to you, but you, it's, you're beating me up, and you kind of look a little thirsty. Can I get you a cup of water? <laughs> that would be a very radical way, but it's just, you know, give your enemies a cup of water. I'm imagining it's probably not in the moment of getting persecuted, but either way, if they're in, in need, I'm loving our enemies, and this is a way that they will see, I'm just ashamed of how I've treated them. Um, and I need to repent. I need to change what I'm doing. In verse 21, he says, Do not overcome, no, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And he started talking about evil back in verse 9. Abhor what is evil, uh, hold on to what is good. And evil is not, is what's, isn't what's supposed to rule us, whether it's our own evil or somebody else's evil. Uh, not to rule our hearts or our behavior. We serve a different king. We do not let ourselves be conformed to the ways this world lives and fit into that mold. And you know, So being, uh, I think, I love the word he uses here, overcome evil with good. And so it's not, people are mistreating me and I'm just going to be a doormat for them. No, he's saying, you overcome their evil by doing good. This is like on the offensive. And if you think about how Jesus overcame the evil of the world, it's not that he went and uh, fought against it by you know by physical means or by just beating people down, but he defeated it by accepting it onto himself. All our sin, all of our selfishness, all of our evil, and Jesus defeats evil by loving those who are doing evil to him, including us. And so think about your neighbor who is hard to love. Maybe the only thing you know about them is that they do this one thing that frustrates you. And if you were to like fill out you know, a map of your neighborhood, it's like, what do I know about them? Well, I knew they do this thing that I don't like and you don't know much else about them. You might have a neighbor that's just hard to relate to. Maybe you have a neighbor that has complained about you or gotten frustrated at you. Maybe you have a neighbor that just talks too much and so you're like, oh, I don't want to, you know, catch them at the mailbox because i got a lot of stuff to do and that's annoying to you. Maybe you've tried to talk to them and they just aren't interested. And so what is the will of God for you with your neighbors? And we see in this passage is that you would have a real, genuine love for them. And if we're going to present ourselves as a living sacrifice to the world, and to God, then we must love our neighbors. And Paul calls this our spiritual worship. We're, we're not conformed to this world, to this world's ways of treating others, of this world, world's way of responding to people when they've harmed us and hurt us. Instead, we're transformed by the renewal of our minds. And there's really, I've talked about this before, but there's three ways we can treat uh, others, three paths we can go down. We can first do what they've done to us. That's one way we can do it. Do what they've done to us. It's reciprocal. It's, it's law. It's justice. This is what you deserve. This is what would be fair. It's an eye for an eye. And this is this really comes natural to us. Doing to others as they've done to us, that's pretty natural. And so when they look at us, they see a, a reflection of what they are like. If I did to Brian what he's done to me, this is imagining Brian's ever done anything mean to me, if I was mean to Brian like he's mean to me, now when he looks at me, he sees a reflection of his own meanness. The other, second option is do what we'd like done to us. So it's do what they've done to us, 
or do what we'd like done to us. And this is using, oftentimes, our willpower uh, to overcome our natural inclinations. Brian was just mean to me, and my natural thing is not to be mean to him, but I'm going to say, what do I want done to me? Okay, I'm going to do that to Brian. It kind of feels like a, a willpower thing, overcoming our natural inclinations. And so when Brian looks at me, he's going to see a reflection, not of himself, but of what I would like him to be like. So if I do to him what I'd like done to me, he's going to see a reflection of what I'd like him to be like. The third option is do what God has done to us. Do as God has done to us. And in reality, God does to us perfectly what we would like done to us. We're actually pretty bad at judging, okay, this is what I like done to me, and so I'm going to do that for Jonathan. But I'm actually pretty bad at choosing the best thing for myself, and so I'm never going to perfectly do to somebody else what would actually be the best thing for them. But God, um, when he loves us, he opens us up, and it goes beyond just willpower. It goes to we're actually changed on the inside. Our minds have been renewed. Our spirit has reprogrammed us. So now I'm doing to others what God has done to me. And so when they look at me, they see a reflection of God. Instead of seeing a reflection of themselves or a reflection of who I want them to be, they'll look and see a reflection of God because I'm doing to them uh, what what God has done to me. And we'll only love this way if we've been loved this way. We will only love our enemies if we've been loved as enemies. And we're focusing on the second greatest commandment, but it's never separated from the first which is to love God above all else. And the first is never separated from the reality that God has loved us. We need to receive God's love before we'll respond in love to Him and before we'll be able to give any sort of meaningful love to other people. And the love we have for others is always a reflection of the love we've received. So the degree to which you love your enemies... Is a, reflection, is a reflection of the degree to which you've received God's love for you as his enemy. And if we go back in Romans of how Paul's laying out the gospel here, we're in this section where he's saying, church, you guys need to love each other. And church, you need to love those people who aren't loving you outside the church. But how do you get here? He starts off in Romans 1 talking about the wrath of God is being revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness, meaning everyone is sitting under God's judgment. It's just painting this dark cloud of like, it doesn't matter if you're Jewish, it doesn't matter if you're Roman or Gen- you know, whatever you are, you're all under the wrath of God. Nobody can get out of it. You've all fallen short of the glory of God. And so then, but then he doesn't say, uh, you know, basically he's saying, you all are enemies. You all have broken the king's laws. So now you're enemies of the king. You've actually rebelled against him first. And so now he is against you. And he has this big, dark backdrop for everything. And he doesn't say, if, so you better watch out, better shape up, so that you don't get this wrath poured upon you. Actually, he sets up this dark background, and, and uh, Romans 2.4 says, the kindness of God leads us to repentance. And then in Romans 3, he says, guess what? You can have a righteousness apart from the law, because God sent his son to take this upon you. I just set this whole thing up. You're his enemies, his wrath is against you, and he sent his son to take that, in your place. And his kindness leads us to repentance, not his wrath. And then if we keep going to Romans 5.8, it says, While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And Paul says, you know, maybe for a good person, someone would choose to die. But certainly not for someone who has been terrible, who's been your enemy, who's been 
nothing but against you. But it says, but this is the kind of God, the kind of love God has for us. Is that while you were sinners, while you were his enemies, He came and died for you. Now all He wants you to do is stand before Him and say, yes, I have I have sinned. I've fallen short of Your glory, and now I'm going to receive Jesus as the sacrifice in my place, so I can be right with You. And God just we just say. God, you're saying you'll have me, and I want you to have me, so take me. And now we're, we'll uh, present ourselves as living sacrifices to God, saying, like, he's just changed me from the inside, and he's made me different. And we're to be a living picture of God's love for his enemies by loving our enemies. And to do that, we need to keep our relationship with God bigger than our relationship with them. We need to keep our relationship with them bigger than the problem or the pain they're bringing into our lives. And love means we're for them, not against them. We don't treat them as an enemy. And so consider, who is your, who in your neighborhood most needs to be loved? I'll pass this out. I don't know if, I don't know if everyone got this little neighborhood diagram um, that you can fill in, like where your house is and where your neighbors are around you. And who in your neighborhood most needs to be loved? In your neighborhood, most needs to be loved. I invite you, if you, if you have someone in mind, just write it down in your bulletin or put it in your phone or something. Who in your neighborhood most needs to be loved? And how can you take a step toward them? So sec- and then secondly, who in your neighborhood is hardest to love? Who in your neighborhood is hardest for you to love for whatever reason? And how can you take a step toward them? And these are moments of annoyance and frustration with other people are golden opportunities for love of them. But they're also prime opportunities for worship because when somebody does something that makes them hard to love, we can pause and say, what does God do for me when I'm hard to love? And so you can, instead of it being like, okay, this neighbor's hard to love, I kind of muster up my willpower to do this, we stop and make it a moment of worship where you can say, when I'm hard to love, how does God treat me? And if you need to, find a verse. Romans 5.8 would be a good verse uh, to see this is how God treats me. If he, if he saved me when I was his enemy and loved me when I was enemy, how much more does he love me now that I'm his beloved son or beloved daughter? So anytime you're having a hard time loving someone, turn it into an opportunity for worship to look at how God loves us, loved us when we were his enemies, and how he continues to love us as we struggle, we stray, we disobey, and wrestle with doubts. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you that you love us with a love that isn't dependent on our actions. Won't you fill us with a deep sense of how much you love us now and how much you always will. In your son's name we pray. Amen.